This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm Head of Programming, Connor Boyle. We're joined on the podcast by Charles Duhigg today. Charles is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and celebrated author, and he returns now with his new book, Super Communicators, which focuses on why some of us are a lot more gifted than others in getting our message heard. Joining Charles in conversation today is Helen Chersky. Helen is a physicist, oceanographer, writer, broadcaster, and science communicator. Let's join Helen now with more. All the wars and strife and polarisation in today's society can make it hard to remember this, but Homo sapiens is fundamentally a social species. And all of humanity's greatest achievements and greatest joys have come about by groups of people working together and sharing. And of course, in our modern world, we're completely reliant on cooperation. And to cooperate, you have to communicate. Um, And the most basic form might be a conversation between individuals, but obviously we've expanded that out. We've got huge libraries full of books and endless online chatter and speeches and songs and poems. We live in a world that is flooded by communication. But what if we need to look again at that basic unit, the conversation between two individuals? What if, for a significant fraction of the time perhaps, we're just not very good at it? And if that's the case, what needs to improve? What's going wrong and how can we get better? Well, these ideas are explored in Super Communicators, which is the new book by Charles Duhigg. Charles is currently writing for The New Yorker. uh, And also he was the author of The Power of Habits, which spent over three years on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, And so this new book, Super Communicators, is all about these ideas. I'm really excited to discuss it. And Charles, thank you for joining us here on Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. Well, we should clarify at the start that the book, it's not about all of communication. It's about one particular and important aspect of communication about, and that, well, we should clarify at the start that the book isn't about all communication. It's about one particular aspect of it, one very important aspect of it, and that's conversations that build connections between people. So what was it that made you think we need help with this? Well, as you pointed out, Communication has always been human superpower, right? That this is what establishes Homo sapien from other other species and has allowed us to to succeed so well is the fact that we can we can come together and we can build families and communities and societies and we do that by talking to each other and in in general by talking to each other one on one or or in small groups. And I found that 
that this was particularly that I, I recognize that this was a superpower, but but I found that even though I'm a professional communicator, there were so many times in my life that I was bad at this. Right. I, I would I would come home from work after a tough day and I would start complaining to my wife about how my boss is a jerk. And and she would have this very practical advice. She would say something like, why don't you take him out to lunch and get to know each other a little bit better? And instead of hearing her advice, I would just get more upset and say, why aren't you listening to me? Why don't you support me? I want you to be outraged on my behalf. And she would get upset because I was ignoring her good advice. And I started thinking, you know, if we're supposed to be so good at communication, why do we fail at it so frequently? And that led me to talking to, to neurologists and psychologists and eco economists and and finding out that we're actually living through this golden age of understanding communication like never before. Is it just the case that, you know, the, the science now and the studies, is it... Is it the case that there's just new knowledge or is it something to do with our world that, you know, mass media and just the number of people we can talk to has kind of made us bad at this? Is it, is it, is it that we sort of have forgotten something because of the modern world or the modern world has made it harder? Or is it just that there's now people actually looking into this and analysing things and we know new things? You're absolutely right. It, it's a combination of these two things. One of the things that's happened is that as everybody listening to this knows, we now live in a world where you can communicate in like a hundred different ways within the one hour, right? You can text, you can email, you could post something online, you could call someone up, you could talk to them. And that that has created new challenges in allowing our communication instincts to come out. But at the same time that the digital revolution has occurred, it's also made it possible for us to study conversations like never before. Because now for the first time, we can record people speaking ad infinitum. We can automatically turn their conversations into transcripts. We can use AI and big data to figure out what's really going on there. We can use neural imaging to see inside their heads while they're having conversations. And so it is true that the world has gotten more complicated, but our understanding has also become more sophisticated. And that's why we're learning things about communication that we really never understood before. One of the things I think about as a, you know, because like you, I'm a professional communicator and it drives me nuts that just communication in general is often done so badly. And there's, you know, I kind of walk around going, ah, can't you see there's this gap in what you just said, you know. <laughs> but there was this wonderful quote at the start of the book that I think is attributed to George Bernard Shaw that the, the biggest single problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And I just think that is wonderful because... I know. I it's so easy to assume, isn't it? Obviously, I said my thing. Why didn't you understand what I said? <laughs> it's exactly right. And and there's a couple of things going on there, right? Because we've all experienced that. I felt like I said something really clearly. And for whatever reason, you were just too dumb to figure out what I was saying. But there's actually two things happening. The first of which is that one of the things that we know is that oftentimes the act of listening is as hard as the act of speaking. And so we really have to learn how to listen. And in part, one of the things that we have to do is what psychologists refer to as looping for understanding, that if we really want to understand what someone is saying, and particularly if we're in a conversation where we're in conflict with them, we have to prove to them that we're listening and we have to verify what we've heard. So looping for understanding is just these three steps. Ask someone a question, repeat back what they just said in your own words. And then the third step, the one that most of us usually forget is ask them if you got it right. 
And what study after study has found is that if you use a technique like looping for understanding, you remove an enormous amount of ambiguity from the conversation. Because not only are you asking the other person if you got it right, if I heard you correctly, you're also causing them to understand how they might not be explaining this fully. And oftentimes, talking is such a complicated cognitive task that not only do we not notice if the other person is listening or not, so they have to prove it to us, we often don't hear our own words. And so when we say something ambiguous, we're not aware of it. Yeah, um, ambiguity is something that I it, 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 I, I, I see it. I see it around so much. And and I guess everybody sees different ambiguities. And, you know, if, if you have some practice, maybe you get spot better at spotting them. But it's so easy to assume as a human that what's inside my head is obvious to everybody. And I guess, you know, we all we all live with that. Now, the book is a sort of it's, it's, it's really it's really interesting because it's a sort of taxonomy of conversations in some way. You know, you categorize things and discuss, you know, how they've been analyzed. But before we get to some of the, the techniques and the things that you talk about, there was a line um, in an example that you wrote. And I think you were writing about customer service representatives. And, you know, so this is someone who someone like you or me calls up and then this person's it's their job to answer these calls and they're dealing with the same kind of queries every day. And you were describing um a computer system that was kind of helping them to to moderate their tone and their speed in order to improve the conversation. But the line that I picked up on was that you said this could improve the conversation as long as the customer didn't know there was computer help. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting because before we get into the weeds on kind of the analysis here, there's this thing, you know, if a pilot is flying a plane and they get help from a computer, everyone's like, great, the plane's going to fly better. I'm not going to complain about that. But why is it different? Why is it that this isn't, we, you know, we don't just reduce this to kind of flow charts of if, if this, then that. Why doesn't it work? Well, I think in large part because at the core of real communication and connection is authenticity, Right. And and 20 years from now, we might feel perfectly fine with computer integrated speech. But right now, if we know that someone's if a machine is telling someone what to say, it doesn't feel authentic to us. And, and that's one of the core ideas of super communicators is that there are these tools to allow us to be more authentic in a conversation. Understanding how a conversation is happening is often the what allows us to have a more genuine, meaningful conversation, asking certain kinds of questions, what are known as deep questions, which ask about our values or our beliefs or experiences, allows an authentic response to come out. And I think the reason why people push back against knowing that their consumer service representative, which let's be honest, all of us hate calling the call centers, right? N knowing that there's some computer telling them what to do is because we want to talk to a human and it feels wrong to us when a machine is involved because it doesn't feel authentic. And that's ultimately what we want to do in conversations to connect is we want to be our authentic selves. But isn't there this interesting tension between... I mean, can you be trained to be authentic? That that's that's what is interesting me. That because because it sort of become is it not then less authentic? I'm not you know I think the analysis is 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 very it's very um, I think the analysis is very believable. You know, obviously there are studies that have shown these things, but if we all trained ourselves to be better listeners, would we 
Would we, could we be more? Can you fake it, basically? Can you fake authenticity? Or do you have to really commit to actually being authentic along with the techniques you're using? Well, I, I think you can learn the rules that allow your authentic self to come out. And, and this might be a good place to talk about what we know about the structure of conversations, right? Because one of the things that the psychologist and the neurologist told me is that the big discovery of the last decade is that when we think of a discussion, we usually think of it as being one thing, right? We're talking about you know, Timmy's grades or where, where we're going to go on vacation. But actually, each conversation is made up of multiple different kinds of conversations. And, and in, in general, they fall into one of three buckets. There's, there's practical conversations that are, you know, where we're trying to make a decision or we're trying to fix a problem together. There's emotional conversations where my goal is not to fix a problem. It's simply to explain to you how I feel and hear how you feel. And there's social conversations, which is about how we relate to each other and how we relate to society. And one of the things that super communicators do, and, and we're all super communicators at one time or another, but the people who more consistently are super communicators is that they've taught themselves to recognize what kind of conversation is occurring and match others. That, that's what happened with my relationship or my conversations with my wife, right? I would come home and I was upset. I was having an emotional conversation. My wife would respond with a practical conversation. She'd give me advice. And as a result, we couldn't hear each other. And so good super communicators, they learn how to match each other, to invite others to match themselves. Now, I don't think that makes it less authentic, right? If, if I'm emotional and my wife knows, oh, Char Charles is in an emotional mindset right now. I need to listen to him. I need to hear what he's saying. I don't think that makes it less authentic. I think it becomes a tool to help a genuine authenticity come out. Because the truth of the matter is that there's these structures that shape all these parts of our lives. And, and when we understand them, we can actually be more honest about who we are. So one of the things that I, one of the things in the book that I, I, you sort of explain the big bang theory to me and I, I have to take a step back here. So I'm a, I'm a physicist. I was, uh, um, you know, trained at the Cavendish laboratory in Cambridge where there were 10% women, 90% uh, male and the sorts, they weren't all like the characters in the big bang theory, but I definitely spent a lot of time in lectures uh, and tutorials with uh, people who were very nice, but their mode of communication was kind of a grunt or a yes or a no, you know, and I have never found the Big Bang Theory funny because I lived it yeah. <laughs> for four years. <laughs> but you explained something interesting about like why it nearly didn't work. Yeah, and, and Tell, share why the Big Bang Theory nearly didn't work. And, and we should make clear we're talking about the the television show, The Big Bang Theory, because I, yeah. I don't, I certainly could not explain the actual Big Bang Theory to you, a physicist. <laughs> I, I, I would hope that you might explain it to me someday and help me understand what it is. But the television show, which people might be familiar with, about these these awkward, nerdy physicists and their attempts to to find love. Um, the show didn't really work at first because they had this basic problem, which is the humor of the show came from the fact that these characters are so bad at communicating what they're feeling, right? Particularly their emotions. And yet the thing is that when, for a sitcom to work, when a character comes on the screen, you need to know immediately what they are thinking and feeling. 
Sitcoms are not about ambiguity or about subtlety. They're about the audience understanding exactly what's happening as soon as that character comes on. I need to know whether these two people hate each other or whether they're in love with each other or whether they're pretending to hate each other because they're actually in love with each other, right? This is the this is the grist of, of sitcoms. But the problem for the writers was they were saying, look, we can't show the audience what these characters are feeling because they're so bad at expressing what they're feeling. That's their basic character flaw. That's where the comedy comes from. But then they figured out this other thing, and it's something that actually NASA in the, in the U.S. has used to choose astronauts. They figured out that if they had two characters come on the screen, even if they were saying different things, even if they were feeling different things, as long as they had basically the same energy and the same mood and they matched each other, then the audience would know that these people were connecting with each other. And it turns out the same is true in life, right? If, if you have a friend who comes up and they're, they're quiet and they're upset and you come in boisterous and try and cheer them up, it's probably not going to work. But if you come in and you're also a little bit quiet and you ask them why they're upset they're going to feel close to you. There's these two vectors, these two factors in how we read the emotions of others, mood and energy. And once we know to recognize those and look for those, it tells us what someone's actually feeling, but also tells us how we can help them process those feelings. And that's what they ended up doing on The Big Bang Theory. And it's really interesting because we see it, we sort of know that in everyday life. It's one of those things, you know, I know, and, and I've, I'm sure you will have had the same, that if you act as a, a professional host at an event, you know, so you're the one that's speaking and introducing the speakers, part of your job is to set the energy for the event, right? Because they will all copy you. And everybody does it instinctively. They don't really think about it. But if you come on and you're, you know, sort of friendly and cheerful and enthusiastic and, and fast, you know, you've got high energy, they will model that. So some of this is natural, but we're not, we, ju we just don't always think about it. Is that how it goes? That's exactly right. And in fact, the, the thing to understand and to remember is that it's all natural, right? We all have these instincts on how to communicate. They're hardwired into our brain by evolution. And there are times that all of us are super communicators, right? There are times that a friend calls you and you know exactly what to say to make them feel better. Or you're about to walk into a meeting and you know exactly how to present your idea so everyone else will be enthusiastic about it. Th those are moments of real connection. Those are moments of super communication. But then there's these other times that we really want to connect with someone. We really want to break through. We want to develop a, a, a stronger, closer relationship. And and it just kind of, we can't figure out what's wrong. We can't figure out why we can't connect with this person. What's going on? This is what we've learned in the last decade is that there is a science to why some people connect and others don't. And, and at its core is this idea of different kinds of conversations and matching the kind of conversation that we're having. But that equally, there are these instincts that we have to communicate that we have to, we sometimes have to learn how to let them out. And you're exactly right that part of it is in this busy world that we're in now and with all these new ways to communicate, it sometimes makes those instincts harder to access. But if you understand the structure, the science underlying how communication occurs, then in some ways you get to stop thinking about it because your instincts will tell you what to do. So you, you just develop a, a more explicit skill set. That's that exactly right. Let's you identify, and especially, I guess I can see perhaps the most useful thing is perhaps you don't think about it much normally, but when you feel things are going wrong, you might be able to identify 
you know, like you said before, what type of conversation it is. I was really interested in, I mean, maybe I'm just sort of made cynical by the world, but there's an example you gave um, at the beginning of the book that was about a jury and, you know, a jury that had to reach a unanimous verdict. And, you know, you explain the the things, the places where people connected, how the conversation developed um, and until they were unanimous. And I'm, I'm interested in two things here. First of all, that type of person, just tell us a little bit about what they were doing. But also, and maybe this is the sort of cynical online world, the thing that it does to you, that I think in the modern world, the, the line between persuasion and manipulation is particularly blurred. And, you know, we watch kind of spy movies and, I don't know, thriller drama things. And one of the things that these characters can do is they can, you know, walk into situations and say things so that people like them and they do things for them. And that's manipulation. Um, you know, so so we'll do those two things separately. First of all, tell me about what that juror that you described was doing. Sure. So, so And then we'll get to the other bit. So this is a great story. And I love that you brought up spies because there is a there's another story in the book about a CIA officer trying to recruit an overseas agent. And you're exactly right. There's this ambiguity. And, and I'd love to talk about that. But let me describe what this guy did in the jury. One of the he he was he was very practiced at being a super communicator. He was someone who had thought a lot about communication. And one of the things that he noticed is that there were jurors in the rooms who were basically having two different conversations without realizing it, right? So he would ask questions. Again, these were these were what are known as deep questions, but they actually don't appear that deep. A deep question is just something that gets us to talk about how we see the world or our values or our beliefs and 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 some of them can be some as simple as, you know, why do you think we're here? Or, you know, what did you make of what he said? Something that gets people to start talking about how they see the world. And what he noticed is that some people in that room wanted to talk about justice. They did not want to talk about whether the facts indicated that this man was guilty. They wanted to talk about whether he should be guilty, whether he had actually, whether this, this law was a good law or not. They wanted to have essentially an emotional conversation about what is fairness in society. And then there were other people who weren't interested in that. They just wanted to have a practical conversation. They wanted to talk about what's the law? Did he violate the law? If the answer is yes, then he should go to jail. And this juror by separating these two conversations, by talking to one group first and saying, let's work through the emotional issues, let's work through the questions of fairness, and then turning to the other group and saying, okay, now that we've talked about fairness, let's talk about practical matters. Let's talk about whether these laws have been violated and how we keep society safe. By doing that, he was able to bring everyone together. Now, you're exactly right. And they came up with a unanimous verdict. They let the guy go. Now, you're exactly right that, that to some, that might seem like manipulation. And, and the thing that's interesting is that communication is a tool, right? It, being a super communicator is about understanding those tools. And like any tool, a tool can be used for good or for bad, right? I, I, can, I can give you an axe and you can use that axe to, to build a house, or you can use that axe to go attack someone. The tool itself doesn't contain the seeds of, of, the, of ethics. Rather, it's how the person deploys it. And this gets a little bit back to the authenticity question. I mean, what was interesting to me about that juror was that it wasn't that he was trying to persuade anyone. 
What he was rather trying to do was to create the space for people to have the conversation they needed to have to make a decision. And although in TV shows, someone can walk into a room and he can persuade everyone and or she can suddenly win everyone over just through the through the saying something the right way. In real life, it doesn't really work that way, right? Because we all have this this detector inside our brain to try and figure out, is the other person being authentic with me? And the best way to show authenticity is to communicate honestly. When when someone understands how to communicate, it's not that they have a new ability to manipulate us. It's that they have a new ability to explain to us what they really think and care about. And that authenticity is actually what frequently persuades us. And I'm not sure that that's a manipulation because oftentimes we can understand what someone said. We can have a great conversation and we can still disagree with them. But as long as we understand each other, the conversation has been a success. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I think it's. It's, they're really interesting topics. The other th- the the um, the reason I asked the question is that part um, you know again maybe this is my cynicism is that is this something that we should know? One of the reasons for knowing understanding these things better now is to know when 
marketers, for example, I guess with a marketer, it's different. Perhaps this isn't, perhaps this sort of stuff isn't the sort of thing that a marketer is going to, I don't know, use to manipulate you. But, but is it, is it the case, do you think that since we understand these things better, we all have to understand them better so that, um, you know, the, the commercial world, it doesn't use them and, and we're not aware of it, Abs- I guess, something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the best way, look, there are companies that are studying how to communicate and have conversations with you, particularly now because they can have conversations one-on-one using AI or using the internet. There are politicians who are studying the science. There are managers who are studying the science. The best way to make sure that they are using it correctly and ethically is for us to understand what's going on too. And and actually, can, can I ask you a question? Is that okay? Because I'm... Go ahead. A, a, as, Go ahead. As a... A physicist, and as uh, my wife is also a scientist, and I think one of the things that you had just said about being a a woman in those rooms as a scientist and the challenges that sometimes you get confronted with when someone is genuinely trying to communicate with you, when they respect you, versus when they're trying to fake it. Do you feel like? Do you feel like you can? You can tell the difference pretty easily. Depends how good they are. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that I am genuinely, very, generally, extremely lucky to work with people who are well intentioned and who are not trying to manipulate me in ways that I disagree with. You know, so um, all of I'm sure all of us would like to think we can tell. I think, I think I might be. A little, I'm tuned into this stuff a little bit, but you know, before your book, just because, like I said, as a as someone, who, especially you know, if you're chairing a discussion, this is your role, right? When you're chairing a discussion in a committee or something, this is almost exactly what you're doing. You're analysing the different types of disagreements around the table, and you're trying to help everyone sort them out. You're trying to ask the questions and present the challenges and say, well, is that what you mean? Or is it this? Or what about this question? And and so, so I do think about these things a lot. Um, but I... I don't think any of us are going to be, where's the line? I guess that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Can, can someone fake being authentic in order to get something done? And the answer is almost certainly yes. So, but we all, we all like to think that we wouldn't fall for it, but we almost certainly do. And, and I think once or twice so that they can get away with it. I think over time, you know, as you're chairing those committees, if you are trying to manipulate the outcome rather than trying to create a genuine space for people to share their ideas, I think over time people would begin to recognize that. And again, that's where those instincts come from. We, we have these amazingly well-tuned detectors inside our heads to figure out when someone is trying to manipulate us. And sometimes, sometimes they don't work every single time, but over time they do. And one of the things that I just heard you say, which I thought was really interesting, is that when you're chairing those committees, your job is to help people explain what they're trying to say. Right, that not everyone necessarily can make themselves heard, or they need they need space, or they need help, so that their idea gets put across. Now, in some ways, people could say that's a manipulation that you should you you should go in with a decision and just recognize the people who agree with you. But I I'm guessing, and please tell me if I'm getting this wrong, that one of the things that you value about science and being a scientist is encouraging people to disagree with each other, encouraging people to take different sides and question something until you come to what you feel like is as close to the truth as possible. 
And learning how to have those conversations so that when I disagree with you, I understand we're disagreeing about a practical matter, but emotionally we're still aligned. Or we're disagreeing because I feel like you aren't respecting me and I need you to show me more respect. Learning how to have those conversations better means actually that we understand each other better. And and this is an important part or important issue. The goal of a conversation is not to convince each other. The goal of a conversation is not even to agree. The goal of a conversation is simply to understand. If I understand you and you understand me, then we have succeeded. And we might both walk away and say that other person's a moron and I totally disagree with them. But I understand what you're trying to say and I feel like you understand me. Then something important has has happened. And that's ultimately why humans have succeeded so well. Well, towards the end of the book, you start to talk about difficult conversations. Um, and society, of course, at the moment has has many contentious topics. Um, but you, you talk about people being terrified of potentially stepping into that territory because they antis- they can sort of see all the things that might go wrong and they just don't want to go there because in case it goes wrong, they're sort of preempting the problem. Um, but done right, you say those conversations leave everyone feeling better. So how, how does all of this help us think about these potentially awkward conversations? And I think the examples you used were about race. Yeah, it, it's a great question. And and it could be about politics. It could be about religion. It could be about race. It could just be about the fact that we have a conflict, right? I, I, I don't like you and you don't like me and we keep on getting each other's way. Um, and, and these questions are really important, particularly right now, because we are living through this time when we are so polarized that it seems like people have forgotten how to communicate. They've forgotten how to have conversations. They've forgotten how to politely disagree. And, and we're seeing the consequences of that all around the world. And what we have learned is that oftentimes it's we have this instinct, this this anxiety that makes us avoid where we disagree. It makes us avoid our differences. But what we found is that the key to helping those conversations be useful and pleasant and productive is acknowledging the differences, right? You as a woman have had different experiences at professionally than I have had as a man. And And the more I can learn about that, the more I can understand you. I can understand where you're coming from. And similarly, as a man, the more you understand my perspectives, the more you understand me. Particularly around conversations about race, what we found is that when you start the conversation by saying, I just want want to acknowledge this might be an awkward conversation. It's probably going to be an awkward conversation. I'm going to make mistakes in what I say, and you're going to make mistakes possibly, and And I just, I think we should start by agreeing that we're just going to kind of forgive each other and understand those come from a good place. And now tell me, what is it like to be a black woman at this company? Or what is it like to be an, an Asian American living at a time when, when politics seems to be inflaming, inflaming sentiments against you? When we ask someone to explain how they see the world we're not, we're not creating an awkwardness. We're inviting them to share who they actually are. And then, and then if we respond in kind, if we engage in what's known as emotional reciprocity, if we say, look, even though I'm a white man, I actually have had these racial experiences and sharing them with you might help you understand how, why I see the world I do. 
we're getting to know each other. And so we had talked about the fact that there's these three conversations, the emotional, the practical, and the social. These are the social conversations. These are the conversations when we're trying to understand how we relate to each other amid society and how we relate to society as a whole. And recognizing our differences, acknowledging our differences, giving honor and respect to the fact that everyone has experienced life a little bit differently, that's not something that drives us apart. That's something that actually brings us closer together. And it will be awkward and it, we will make mistakes. But if we allow for that, then something magical ends up happening, which is that we actually communicate. And one of the... And that it's uh, it would be wonderful if everyone could do that better. And I guess one of the things about this is that um, humans perhaps have to relearn, you know, be reminded and to relearn. But you need to be, it needs to be reinforced. You know, it's not enough. It's not like you learn these things and forget it. That if if society was really to do better at this, we would need a culture of of maintenance, effectively, to kind of you know set examples and remind people that this is the culture. This is how we talk about these things. And that is a huge education project. But I want you to come on to the big, the sort of elephant in the room for really for this type of conversation, which is the online world. You know, you also, there's another example where you describe, and and I was I could see you were going to come to this point, and I was very curious about what happened when you did in the book, where you describe a different type of conversation, a different topic. This was gun control, and in the in person, it all went well. Everyone had their conversations. They understood each other, you know. And then after that session, after the sessions in person, there was a, a, a period where it shifted online. Tell us what happened next. Well, so so everyone got together in Washington, D.C. They had this conversation. These were people who were adamant gun gun rights supporters and adamant gun control supporters. And they they all got along. They had these great conversations. They didn't agree with each other, but they really understood where each other was coming from. And then they go home and they get on Facebook and it all falls apart. Within 45 minutes, they were calling each other jackbooted Nazis, right? It just got toxic immediately. And when I talked to them about what happened and when I talked to researchers about this, what they said is that, you know, the reason it worked so well in person is because we have been talking, we've been communicating face to face for millennia, right? We have so much experience at that. We have learned those intuitions. We've learned those lessons without even thinking about them. But anytime a new technology comes along, we have to learn how to use it. What's interesting is that when telephones first became popular, there was a slew of articles saying no one will ever be able to have a real conversation on a telephone. Because if you can't see someone's face, you won't know what they're feeling. You won't be able to really communicate your own emotions. And of course, now we have real conversations on the phone all the time. We hardly even think about it. But it's because we've learned to communicate a little bit differently on telephones. If you listen to how people communicate on phones, what you'll see is that they tend to enunciate a little bit more and they overexplain a little bit more because they know someone can't see them. Someone can't pick up on the visual cues. The thing about online conversation is the first email was sent in 1982, right? We, we've, only been, we've only been doing social media for less than 20 years now. We haven't worked out those rules so well that they've become intuitions. They've become natural to us. And so the key, and this is what ultimately saved the conversation for the, for the gun control and gun rights activists online, is to remember that when you're talking online, it is different from when you are talking face-to-face -face or on the phone or when you're texting or when you're posting something to a large group. Oftentimes when we're online, we have to be a little bit more polite 
In fact, studies have shown that simply saying please and thank you reduces the amount of conflict by about 40%. When we're online, we have to remember that it's almost impossible to convey sarcasm, which is so easy to do with our voice. But if you say something sarcastic, the other person's going to think you're being serious. And as we learn to think about each channel of communication differently, we'll recognize that there's rules that are unique to each channel, and then they'll become intuitive. For our kids, it's going to feel as natural to send a text full of emojis as to have a face-to-face conversation as to call someone up. But that's because they've learned that texting abides by a different logic. And once you learn that logic and you respect it, then you can overcome a lot of problems. I think that's one of the most optimistic things I've heard in, uh, well, I mean, it's only a little way into 2024 as we record this. So maybe even all of last year as well, the idea that part of the problem, you know, part of the reason that the online world seems like such a difficult, contentious place is that we're just not very good at it and we might get better. Um, and it's certainly true. I mean, I'm sure all of us have experienced, you know, there are some types of conversation that actually work better on the phone because sometimes if you take away those cues, people are less embarrassed about, you know, they can focus on the words and they don't have to also worry about their, you know, body language and facial reactions. And it actually sometimes makes things easier. Absolutely. Um, so, so I think there's a I, I anything that hurries up the process of online learning how to communicate better online. I am I'm all in favor of um, and maybe it won't have to be this contentious forever if, if people kind of learn the rules. Um, so I, I thought a lot of this. You know, you said a lot of this is natural and, it, you know, elements. This is these are kind of natural things that we don't think about explicitly. But I. You know, I thought, isn't this really a lot of this just about respect? You know, the, the things you describe, and, and we haven't gone through them all because I think people should read the book, but, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the listening, the deep questions, all of that, that's kind of what you do when you're actually interested in someone and you actually respect their point of view. So is part of this that we just, we need to learn to be more respectful human beings? I, I think so. And I, I think another way I'd put it is we need to learn how how rewarding it feels to understand another person, right? And again, to come back to the science, when when we're in conversation with someone, when we connect with them, there's this thing that happens where our our bodies start to act similarly. Right, right now, although we can't tell, our pupils are probably dilating at similar rates. And, and more importantly, inside our brains, as we're sharing ideas, our brains are starting to look alike. That's what communication is. It's known as neural entrainment, as you know, that this this sharing an idea where we begin to think and feel alike. And, And we have evolved to enjoy that. Like, think about the last time you had a great conversation. It just felt so good, right? We have evolved to enjoy that because that's how our species has survived, by seeking out those kinds of conversations and that pro social activity. And so the thing that we have to remind ourselves is not only respect, but just that we enjoy having a conversation where we understand each other. Now, that does not mean respect does not mean I need to agree with you. If I'm sitting down with you and I'm firmly in support of gun control and you think that everyone should be allowed to own an AK-47, I might not agree with your position. I might not even respect your logic. But if I try and understand you, if I try and understand why you feel that way, how that makes sense to you, how that shapes how you see the world and people like me, that is going to feel good. I'm going to enjoy that conversation. 
And, and that's the thing that I hope people walk away with. We can all be super communicators. Like these are, nobody's born with better communication skills than anyone else. It's just a set of skills that anyone can learn. And they're skills that once we learn, we enjoy using. And so whether we call it respect or we call it authenticity or we call it simple understanding, if we try to have good conversations, not conversations where we convince each other, not conversations where we even agree, but just conversations where we understand, we will feel better about the world. We'll feel better about our fellow men and women, and we'll feel better about ourselves. It's, it's what we're designed to do. There's a great phrase somewhere early in the book, I think, where you say, uh, in the context of one of the practical conversations, um, it's not about dividing up the pie, it's about making the pie bigger, which I, which I like. But the idea is there are bigger pies, right? We can, we can all, all win without someone else losing in this kind of situation. That's absolutely right. You know, the, the truth of the matter is that it, whether we're divided on politics or religion or gender or sex, there are these things that we probably have in common, which is that we care about our kids or we care about fairness or we care about justice or, or, and maybe we have different ways of trying to get to that end goal. But if I understand that you disagree with me because we both care about doing what's right, then we have made the pie a little bit bigger. It, we might not agree on how the pie should be divided, but simply expanding it makes the world a better place. And uh, just at the end, I, I have to ask, you know, you, you've spent years thinking about these ideas, you've summarized them all in your head, you've written to share with the rest of us. What, what influence has all this had on you? This must have... Oh my gosh. Yeah, tell us about that. It's, trans, it's transformed how I talk to like my wife and my kids and my coworkers. So um, one of the things I mentioned that I used to have these problems with with my wife, and one of the techniques that, that, the, that reporting this book revealed was this thing that they teach teachers to do, which is when a, when a student comes up to you and they have a problem or they're upset, you ask them, do you want me to help you? Do you want me to hear you? Or do you want me to hug you? Right. And those are the three kinds of conversations, the practical, the emotional and the social. And what my wife and I do that with each other all the time. Now, if I come to her and I'm upset, she maybe doesn't use the three H's because it seems a little juvenile, but she'll say like, look, do you want, do you want me to help you figure out how to solve this problem? Or do you want me just to, to hear that you're upset? And sometimes when she asks me that, it makes me realize what I want for the first time, right? Like, like, no, I want you just to like feel outraged on my behalf. The more we communicate about communication, and that's what I've carried away from this, is that the more we talk about how we want to communicate, the more we share our goals in a conversation, the more that we we ask questions and let and show other people that we're we're listening to them, the closer we end up feeling to people, even if we don't agree with them. And so I would say it has it has brought me so much closer to my wife and my kids, but more importantly, it's brought me so much closer to people that I disagree with, the people, people I would not have had a relationship with otherwise. And, and I think in a democracy or in a complicated world like our own, being feeling close to those people, feeling like I understand them, even if I don't agree with them, that's really important. That's hopefully how, how we move forward and, and um, 
and continue to thrive. Well, and if we get better at all of this, hopefully it would make the world a less lonely place because you've got more people around you who are on your side <laughs> in at least one way, if not in all ways. We are out of time, Charles. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, I hope that people listening uh, for you, that it, it's given you a, maybe some ways to think twice about some of your conversations today. Um, I highly recommend that you read the book. It's called Super Communicators by Charles Duhigg. It's published on the 20th of February, 2024. Charles, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Intelligence Squared and I'm Helen Chersky. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. 